Well, we are uh, slowly but surely uh, continuing to make our way uh, through this beginning part of Bray Sheet of uh, Genesis. And uh, how refreshing is it to be reminded, you know, that, uh, that the God of Israel, the one who, uh, who uh, brought our people through the uh, Red Sea and through the wilderness and, and, uh, and so on, is the one who made everything. Uh, and it is, uh, you know, it is really a, uh, a blessing uh, to be able to understand that and to... Uh, you know, and really to uh, to appreciate that. It's interesting. I'm reading a book of, uh, about uh, uh, the theology of the Tanakh, and and uh, the writer refers to this whole first section of the Bible as uh, Israel's gospel. It's an interesting uh, uh, phrase. You know, Israel's gospel, the good news uh, for Israel. And, uh, and the, this uh, writer makes the point of saying that Israel's story, it's, it's not even so much that Israel's story uh, uh, begins in chapter 12 with chapters 1 to 11 as the, uh, uh, you know, as the preamble, but that actually Israel's story begins in Genesis 1, that it's actually the beginning of, of the story. Uh, of Israel, because uh, in the um, in the, in the outworking of it all, Israel's story begins with God creating the heavens and the earth, and with God uh, uh, creating mankind for a particular purpose, and uh, and so it really is one continuous story. Uh, in the very same way that, frankly, in First uh, Chronicles. First Chronicles, if you've ever, you know, a lot of the reasons people don't, uh, don't read uh, Chronicles is because when, when you start reading it, you say to yourself, this is all genealogies. You know, what do I want to read this for? Because it's nine chapters. Boy, if you like genealogies, have I got a Bible book for you, right? So the first nine uh, chapters is genealogies. But it's interesting, it begins with Adam, Right? Uh, to make the point to the Jewish people who came back uh, from captivity, this is your story, and it begins at the beginning. It, the begi- it begins at the beginning of the book. Uh, and then not only that, but also in the Gospel of, uh, of John, we have the story of Yeshua that doesn't begin when he is uh, born to Miriam, when he's you know, uh, miraculously uh, 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 born, from the virgin, but in the beginning, you know, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so um, uh, it's interesting that in Genesis 1, and then in First Chronicles, and in the Gospel of John, uh, there is this understanding that the beginning of the story of redemption is simply the beginning of the story. Uh, and uh, and so that's kind of, that, that's... Um, uh, kind of helpful and, you know, and, um, you know, and also uh, kind of interesting. And, of course, you know, there are a lot of uh, uh, places uh, in the Bible where creation is spoken about, where creation language is used uh, to make the point that God is the one who delivers. If you read Isaiah chapter 40, and even the following chapters real carefully, you see that there's a lot of emphasis that, the, that God who redeems Israel is the God who made everything. And so when we read this first chapter uh, of, of the Bible, uh, hopefully, that, hopefully we can respond the way uh, we see that passage being responded to in the text of the Bible. We've already looked, uh, I think, each of the weeks that we've been talking about this at some of the different Psalms where uh, you read in Psalm 104 and Psalm 137 and Psalm 103 and elsewhere, where the psalmist is rejoicing and praising God for this miraculous, wondrous uh, uh, creation. Not trying to figure it all out, but sort of just receiving this, this, uh, great, uh, this great truth. Then there's something else I think that's very interesting, especially because today... 
we come to uh, the very end of the beginning, right? The end of the beginning, uh, which is in the first three verses of chapter 2. And it's important uh, that we really, the big two in your Bible, uh, really should come uh, uh, in between verses 3 and 4. That's really where, uh, where it should come. You know that uh, when God breathed out this word, there were no chapters in the Bible, right? Uh, and, and, uh, and so it is really, we could almost say, a tradition where the, each chapter begins and, and ends, right? Uh, and, uh, and so if you read verse 31 of chapter 1, and then verses 1, 2, and 3, we come to the end of the story of the actual creation. Okay, uh, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, a sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Okay, we can stop there. And actually, I could have started a few verses earlier, but that's okay. So here we see that uh, God completes the work and then he rests on the seventh day. But it is interesting uh, that um, uh, you read in other places of the Bible and one in particular that could perhaps be understood is how God felt about the whole thing. Uh, not just the utility of he created, he finished creating, and then he rested, right? But if you turn to Proverbs, Proverbs 8, in Proverbs 8, this is a famous passage because it talks about wisdom and how wisdom is personified. And it is a good way to understand uh, how uh, in this late Second Temple period, how people understood uh, uh, wisdom as actually having a, a personality, and, it, and therefore it leads to a very helpful way of understanding the incarnation of Yeshua in certain ways. But uh, in this chapter, uh, um, it's very interesting. Wisdom is a, a personification of God, of, of, of God and who he is. Well, it says something very interesting about how God viewed this whole creation thing. Uh, if you look at verse... Um, well, actually, we can start in verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. From there were, uh, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary, so that the water should not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, as I was daily his delight. Or, yes, and I was daily his delight. Rejoicing always before him, I rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. So now that is very interesting. Of course, uh, uh, we could relate this to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And another way of talking about that might be talking about wisdom. Wisdom was, you know, in the beginning was wisdom. Uh, wisdom with, was with God, and wisdom was God. But notice what wisdom does here. Wisdom delights in his creation. And in particular, he delights in the creation of mankind. And I think that is uh, something very important to dwell on when we come back to uh, the beginning in, uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 1. When God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was really good. And there was evening and there was morning and sixth day. God was 
pleased with this creation. He loved this creation. It wasn't just he made it and he put up with it and, and redeemed it, you know? Uh, but he loved it. He delights in the creation. Now, from our vantage point, that can be difficult to understand because it's so marred with sin. It's, it's in some ways almost unrecognizable, you know, and so we lament over it, God laments over it, and we say he loves it because he does love it, but it's always from the vantage point of he loves it because he's sticking with it, and he's going to redeem it, and he's, he's in the process of redeeming it. Uh, it's all messed up, but he loves it anyway. But when you go back to the beginning, is, it, is that he delighted in, in what he had created, he delighted in all that he had made, in, in how he created the whole thing, and then, he, and then he organized it, as we said, and he prepared it and set it up in just the perfect way for mankind to be able to dwell. And then he created mankind, he created man in his own image. Uh, and the text is very clear uh, that he says, uh, male and female, uh, he created them and he blessed them and he, he even and he blesses the animals and, and they procreate after their kind, but we're created in the image and likeness of God. And we talked about that, that it, it really includes uh, our whole selves, but where we are differentiated from everything else has to do with uh, our uh, being called uh, uh, to rule and subdue the earth. Now, you know what's interesting about that? Why would God like that, rule and subdue the earth? Those are very negative words, uh, rule and subdue. If you uh, look up, and I know that some of you, I'll bet right now, are doing that, and uh, within nanoseconds, we'll have every place in the Bible where those words are used, <laughs> you will see that they're usually used having to do with uh, subjugation uh, and, and, and oppression. You know, uh, you subdue the nations that you overtake. You know, uh, uh, in the ancient world, basically turn them into slaves, right? You rule over them, and oftentimes that rule was, was a very harsh, harsh rule. And uh, all you have to do is look up these words in your favorite uh, Bible dictionary, concordance, uh, uh, or a lexicon, and you'll see that these are words having to do mainly with subjugation. But isn't it interesting that before sin, to rule and to subdue was not negative. It's to be like God and oversee and, and rule the way, the way he would have us to. And of course, you know, there are many passages in the Bible that talk about the day when Yeshua returns and he sits on his throne in Jerusalem and he rules. He's going to rule and subdue. But He's not going to oppress. He's not going to take advantage of. Uh, it's all benevolent. It's all doing the best for the creation. And so if you go back and you look uh, here in verse 28 of chapter, that's why I said I should have started a few verses earlier, when it says, and God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the, on the earth. And so we, mankind, was created in God's image to be delegated the responsibility of overseeing the world. And therefore, uh, because, again, we're created in the image and likeness of God, and we said this, I think, last time, that God is a plurality, we are a plurality. It's not that there are billions of different images of God. You know, sometimes we think that way, isn't it? Like you look in the mirror, this is an image of God, right? Uh, we're missing the point, right? Uh, is that humanity, we are the image of God. And we all, as individuals, therefore we reflect that image because we participate in the image of God, right? Uh, and so therefore... Uh, an interesting study, and people have done a, a lot on this, and I would encourage you, uh, if you ever have the, the time and the desire, to uh, study how, the, how God relates to himself, how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit interact with each other, uh, and that there is a, you know, a social understanding of the triunity of God, uh, and that is to be a mirror of the way we interact with one another. 
And so that's why, boy, that, is, that brings the whole, uh, the whole concept of, uh, you know, of being the image of God and relating to one another in godly ways to a whole new level. It's not just to demonstrate uh, kingdom living and uh, what it means to know the Lord and so on, uh, or just for myself to live in such a way that I am, I myself am demonstrating the, uh, the reality of Yeshua. But we are called to demonstrate the reality of Yeshua because we are the image of, uh, of God. And this, of course, is mirrored in the language used to describe the body of Messiah, right? When we talk about the body of Messiah, we're composed of individual parts. We have illustrations of family, illustrations of body parts, uh, and then in the book of Ephesians, how we are to grow up to be a, a, a mature man, to be a mature Yeshua, according to the proper working of each individual part. So it's not, just, it's not about me. It's about us. It's about uh, humanity in that, in that sense. We, we uh, indeed uh, uh, talked about that. But what we want to really get right now is that God was delighting in this. He was loving this. He loves his creation. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, I, I would suggest that that wouldn't be a bad thing to like dwell on at home for a while. That, that God, when he finished creating, and he said, it's very good. It is very good. It was orderly the way God desired it to be. And this is how it will be again. But the wonderful news is that God has never stopped loving his creation. He has never stopped loving this world. And, and again, that is why the famous verse that, that everybody knows, right? Uh, this is how God loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son. He sent Yeshua into this world so that we might, have, we might not die but have eternal life. But the rest of the story is, because of Yeshua, the entire creation will be redeemed. The entire creation will be redeemed. And isn't that what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 about how the, the creation groans. We groan. Even believers, yes, even we ourselves groan. That's exactly how he says it. Waiting for the redemption of our body. And you know, waiting for the redemption of the, of the, whole, the whole world. And so we, are, as human beings, every believer in Yeshua is the remnant in, in, a global, in the global sense. Israel is, Israel is called to be the, the nation who uh, is the channel of fellowship for the world to receive this redemption, right? And even within Israel, there is a remnant today, right? And we understand, we understand that. But God delighted in his, uh, in his creation. So he delighted in it, and what did he do? Okay. Well, it says, uh, and by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work uh, that he had done. Now, so when it says here, uh, there's a couple of things immediately you want to notice about the seventh day. The seventh day is different than all the other days. Different than all the other days. First of all, you notice there's no evening and morning. There's no evening and morning, and that was the seventh day. It doesn't talk about a beginning, and it doesn't talk about it uh, ending. Okay? Or especially ending, evening and morning at, at the end of the seventh day. Okay, that's one thing. Uh, another thing is, is he doesn't create anything on the seventh day. He doesn't make anything, he doesn't form anything, he doesn't shape anything, he doesn't place anything. Okay. Uh, and then, interestingly enough, in verse 3, he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work, which he had created and made. All right. So we need to understand a little bit about what it means that God rested and what it means that he blessed the seventh day and that he sanctified it. And then uh, how, how uh, we relate to it uh, right here. Okay, so uh, we see here that he rested. Okay. Now, the word uh, rest here is actually the word Shabbat. It's the word Shabbat. Okay. I, I, there, it's the word, there's no noun here called Shabbat, like, uh, you know, on, on the Shabbaton, 
or on the Shabbat. Uh, now, there's another word for rest, nuach. It's another word for rest. But interestingly enough, it's not used here. But the word Shabbat is used. And what does it mean? Look it up in your, you know, in your uh, lexicon, and you'll see that when it's not referring to the, Jew, you know, the, the, the Shabbat day, what the word actually mean, means to cease, to stop, to stop what you're doing, to rest. And so it's important to understand that here, that I, uh, when it says that God rested, God was not tired. He wasn't like, he was tired because he worked so hard, and now he's getting ready for another week of creation. You know? Uh, no. No. So, really, what it means here is that he ceased from creating. He finished. He ceased from creating, and as we see in Proverbs uh, 8, he was delighting in his creation, uh, uh, and uh, I guess one could say enjoying what he had done. And he, this day, the seventh day, was a, a day that is, in a sense, the climax, maybe from God's point of view, of the whole thing. The climax of creation is humanity. But perhaps from the point of view of God's uh, work uh, and what he had done, the seventh day is this climactic day of rejoicing, of ceasing, of stopping. Now, so what does it mean then when it says uh, that um, God blessed the seventh day uh, and, uh, and sanctified it? I mean, we can understand when it says he blessed people, you know, and be, so that they would be fruitful and multiply, it says. Uh, uh, or even when he, when he blesses the animal world, the fish, and to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, or even when uh, we're talking about uh, later on, uh, the blessings uh, you know, uh, related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, in fact, I don't have the number with me, but uh, you know, the word bless or blessing is used an extraordinary number of times in the book of Genesis. An extraordinary number of times in the book of Genesis. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, we can understand, you know, God blessed Abraham in certain ways. He blessed uh, uh, mankind, all of us, in the, in, in the ability to procreate. But what does it mean when it says he blessed Shabbat or the Sabbath or the seventh day? Here, technically, frankly, according to this passage, it's simply called the seventh day. There is not yet an institution of Shabbat, okay? It's just simply called the seventh day when God Shabbated, okay? When God ceased uh, uh, from his work. Now, the word bless, blessing, is a very interesting word. One could say, I suppose, that it is a word that is used to describe the relationship that God has with uh, with, with whomever or whatever he has a relationship with. God blesses in, in different ways. We usually think of the definition of blessing as the, the, uh, the benefits of blessing. You know, like a blessing means, uh, you know, uh, having good health, or blessing means having a lot of cattle, in the Bible it does. Uh, blessing means having children. Uh, blessing, mean, blessing means a lot of things, okay? When, but what we could say is overall, what does blessing do? What is blessing? I think we could say that blessing is an infusion of life. That blessing is an infusion of life, meaning to, to be what God wants us or it or whatever he blesses uh, whatever he blesses uh, to be. And so then the question is, so uh, what does it mean when God blesses the, the Sabbath? It means that there's something unique about the seventh day that, that is life-giving, that is fruit-bearing, that is stimulating, that is very good. And he sanctifies it. I suppose we could say 
that, well, the, uh, you could say he blesses it by sanctifying it, I suppose. Uh, that would not be bad or a terrible thing to say. Uh, but uh, uh, it is interesting that he does use uh, this word uh, for uh, bless. Uh, here, let me read a little quote that I have that might be helpful. It says, Unlike the blessings, this comes from uh, Nachum Sarna in his commentary in the Jewish Publication Society um, commentary on Genesis. Uh, unlike the blessings of verse 22 and 28, which are verbal, specific, material, and relate to living creatures, this blessing is undefined and pertains to time itself. The day becomes imbued with an, extraordinary, an extraordinarily vital power that communicates itself in a beneficial way. That is why the routine day formula is here omitted. God, through his creativity, has already established his sovereignty over space. The idea here is that he is sovereign over time as well. Through his weekly suspension of normal human activity, man imitates the divine pattern and reactualizes the original sacred time of God, thereby recovering the sacred dimension of existence. And, uh, of course, there's a lot of words there. But the idea is, uh, is that we, we share with God uh, this day. And in, in, uh, here in, uh, chapter, uh, in chapter 2, we see here that God separates it. He makes it, we could say, he makes it his own, and it is called sanctified. You know, this is the first time that you read about, now God has made this whole creation, but this is the first thing that's holy. The first thing that's holy is the time, is the seventh day. He doesn't say man is holy. He doesn't say the animals are holy. He doesn't say the earth is holy. But the seventh day is holy and separated unto him. Uh, it has a, a particular uh, a particular quality. Uh, that God enjoys, that God enjoys, okay? So then the question, of course, uh, becomes, well, what does this mean? Uh, what, what does this mean to us? What does it mean, uh, you know, later on, uh, later on in, uh, in, in history? Uh, how do we relate to it? Well, we know that um, while this is not the institution of Shabbat. This is simply telling us that, that God, uh, as he created time and created each day, he created a day called the seventh day where, in which he, uh, he rested. Now, this, this, oh, the, the, before we talk about how it relates to us, there's something else here. This issue of there's no end of it. For God, there's no end of it. So what does it tell us? I might suggest, or may I suggest, that uh, it's saying that God has completed his creation. doesn't mean that God stops doing anything, okay? That God, uh, again, didn't Yeshua tell us that God never stops working? <laughs> Certainly. But it's telling us that God has completed the creation. In other words, there's a continuity to creation. Things happen in creation, and God intervenes in the world. There, there are earthquakes, and there are floods, and... There are, you know, uh, uh, the sun shines and it rains and, and sometimes uh, things that we call acts of God uh, uh, happen uh, in, in weather-related uh, events and things like that. It doesn't mean that God stepped back and now uh, it all functions on its own, but the way that God created this world is for it to be able to perpetuate itself, right? Animals uh, give birth to... Other animals, human beings, procreate, give birth to other human beings. God has delegated this uh, uh, to us. Uh, the earth brings forth vegetation. Okay? So when God created everything, he, he, in a sense, delegated in the creation for it to be able to perpetuate itself, yet he certainly is involved. He doesn't have to create it all over again. And that is, uh, you know, I think that is a very significant point, that the creation is, uh, is completed. Uh, and as we say, God 
was very pleased and delighting in that creation. And so, in a sense, the seventh day doesn't end for God because uh, it, it, it is finished. The creation is, uh, is complete. Now God works with the creation. And as we'll see uh, in the rest of chapter 2, he's going to focus. He's not done with, we're not done with explaining. He's going to go into more detail on the creation of uh, mankind. But uh, here we see that this creation is, is finished and God delights in it. Okay, so now, first, when we uh, move forward in the Bible and we go like to uh, Exodus chapter 20, we read, well, even before, uh, before chapter 20, right? Uh, when God uh, gives them food to eat, right? Gives them the, uh, the manna, right? He tells them here, uh, uh, if you look in chapter 16, beginning in verse, uh, beginning in verse 22. Now it came about on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over put aside and be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. And Moses said, eat it today. For today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, uh, there, will, there will be none. And it came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they, but they found none. Okay, well, uh, we can... Uh, uh, well, actually, let me read the rest of this little section. And it came about on the seventh day that the sons of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses... How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Okay. So, I, interestingly enough, you know, it's a Sabbath to the Lord. And so God was not going to God was not going to rain down manna on the seventh day. And uh, you know, a way you could look at this is that God invites them to participate with him in Shabbat by gathering twice as much on the sixth day, and that they rest along with God on the seventh day. And then this is literally set in stone. Uh, in chapter in chapter twenty, right? Uh, in verse uh, eight, in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but on the seventh, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord, of the Lord your God. The Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, nor you nor your son, your daughter, or male or female servant, your cattle, your sojourner who stays with you. And he says, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them uh, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day uh, and made it uh, and made it holy. Now, it's interesting that if you look up all of the words, all the verses that talk about uh, uh, Shabbat, you will see that there's a mixture of terms. It doesn't work. To say it always uses, you know, when it's talking about rest in one area, it always uses the word Shabbat. And when it's, and it always uses the word Nuach in another way, it, it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, but it is interesting that uh, you see in um, Exodus chapter 23, in verse 12, when it says, Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor in order that your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your female slave as well as your uh, stranger may uh, refresh themselves. Now that's kind of interesting because the word for cease is the word Shabbat. Okay? You might have a different translation, I don't know, 
but it uses some word that means stoppage, <laughs> okay? Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease, you shall stop. Then it says, in order that your ox, your donkey, may nuach, may, may rest, and the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. Now, I would say that it doesn't mean that you're not supposed to, ref- that the Israelite person is not supposed to refresh themselves. Uh, certainly that uh, plays into what Shabbat is. But it's important to, uh, you know, to recognize that it is a day when we share with God the delight in ceasing from work. It's not meant to be, to serve the other six days of the week. In other words, that the goal is production. The goal is producing. The goal is working. And so therefore, we need Shabbat in order to do better on day one, two, three, four, five, and six. In other words, Shabbat is necessary so we can produce more, so we can make more. No, it actually works the other way around. That the six days, as uh, Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel would say in, you know, in his book, uh, The Sabbath, I'm probably not quoting this exactly, but that the six days serve the seventh day. It's not that the seventh day serves the other six. So that, yes, we work, we create, we oversee, we do all that we do, but it leads to this day of sharing with God, so to speak, the fruit of our labor and rejoicing in fellowship with him. And, of course, being indeed uh, refreshed. We're not like God. He doesn't need refreshment. As human beings, we indeed do. And so that's an, it's sort of an added dimension of Shabbat uh, for, for human beings. But Shabbat is a day unto itself. Heschel also calls it a palace in time. A palace in time. In other words, what Shabbat accentuates is the fact that it is time that is holy. And that he makes it that way. We do not make it holy by what we do or we don't do. No matter what you do on Shabbat, it's holy. You do not make it holy. You join in, perhaps, but let me share this uh, uh, with us, and, and hopefully this is uh, a little bit helpful. Sometimes, you have to, sometimes some people have to work, have to go to work on Shabbat, right? Uh, uh, there are times when, when I have been asked, well, you know, uh, I've been looking for a job, and I, I need a job, uh, but uh, I, uh, 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 the only job I can get makes me work on, uh, on Saturdays, so I'm thinking I'm not going to work uh, at all, because I'm, no. You know, Shabbat is still holy, even if you have to work. It is the time that is holy. It isn't holy because we have services. It isn't holy because you come to services. It is holy because God blessed it and made it that way. And so, even if in your life, in this world, and let's face it, there is much in this world that is not optimal and that doesn't work quite right. But know in your heart and know in your mind that it is Shabbat in your heart and in your mind, even if you have to go to work. And that's very important. Uh, uh, that, uh, that Shabbat is not a slave to us. What did Yeshua say? In fact, let's turn to the New Covenant, where Yeshua is dealing with uh, issues of uh, Shabbat. In Mark chapter 2, you have an issue about Shabbat. Beginning at the, it's at the end of the chapter, in Mark 2.23. And it came about that he, when he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, See here, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never heard what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions? How we entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests? And he gave it also to those who were with him. And he was saying to them, The Sabbath was made for man. 
or for the sake of man, and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So he's saying here, ultimately, that the Sabbath is not made to be a, uh, uh, a millstone around our necks. That the Sabbath uh, is, made, is made for man. The Sabbath is made for man, for us to be able to cease from our labor. And if we have to pick food to eat, we're going to pick food to eat. And it is the very same principle as healing on, uh, healing on Shabbat, doing well on Shabbat. Or, you know, even uh, today, sometimes people ask, this, would this is an illustration about Yom Kippur, but it also applies to Shabbat, that about fasting on Yom Kippur, that uh, people say, well, I have to take medication. Should I take the medication on, Shabbat, on, on uh, Yom Kippur because I'm supposed to fast? I don't want to fail God. You, do you know that in Judaism, that it is a sin not to eat, yeah, it is a sin not to eat on Yom Kippur, if you need to eat for, uh, to, you know, for, for health reasons, if you, if you must. Uh, and so it's, it's the same thing is true who here. Sabbath is, is given to us as a, uh, 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 as, as a glorious endeavor. In fact, uh, you may be familiar um, with the concept of uh, Shabbat being the, the queen. The Sabbath queen welcoming the queen. And when you, know, when you take that back to the creation, what you see there is, is as if God made, a, uh, it's like he made the palace, and Shabbat is the queen of the palace. He made the world, he created the world and all that is in, all that is in it. He created it for mankind, and he has given to us this day to share with him our king, the one who is delegated to us, oversight of this world, to share this day of fellowship with him in whatever it is, how, you know, in whatever it is we do, whether it's, whether it's physically or emotionally in our heart uh, uh, or, or, you know, in, in our mind. Uh, and so God has given us Shabbat, but there's more to the one, I, I will probably continue with this next time, but... It is interesting when you look at uh, a Shabbat that, uh, turn to Psalm 95 for a second. Something interesting happens to this issue of rest. Something happens to this issue of rest. And I think I'm just going to introduce this part and we'll save it for next time. That uh, God uses the, the, he uses the concept of rest in a, varieties, in a variety of ways. We don't have time to look at it, but in Deuteronomy and in Joshua and places like that, he uses rest to describe the children of Israel entering the promised land, that you'll have rest in the land. Uh, Joshua, said, Joshua talks about, the, and they had rest on every side, this concept of rest. Okay? So uh, uh, rest was not only the, uh, the Shabbat, but also uh, dwelling with God in the land. But in Psalm 95, something happens to this concept of rest and it becomes very less physical and more about our relationship with God. Notice uh, what we read here uh, in uh, Psalm 95, beginning in verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. As at Mirabah, as in the day of Massah, in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said they are a people who err in their heart. They do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. And so it's interesting that now rest, he's saying this to people long after these facts are over. He wants, them to, he wants them to enter the rest. He's not talking about specifically uh, entering the promised land in Psalm 95. This is written long after entering the promised land. But he wants them to enter the, the land. That's why he says, today, today if you would hear my voice, do not harden your heart. Like back then, don't harden your heart. 
But today, you can have the, the rest of God. You can enter into a, like a Shabbat with, with me, with God in Psalm 95. And get that, that he's saying today, long after that fact, you can have that rest now. So it becomes this issue of some kind of blessing of relationship with God. Okay? When you turn to um, Matthew chapter 11, it's no coincidence that uh, Yeshua quotes uh, Jeremiah, but it's no coincidence that he says, that, says this. In verse 28 of Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and, and humble in heart, you, and you shall find rest for your souls. This concept of uh, of resting with God, of sharing the day with God. But now what we see, it's more than a day. It is a spiritual reality, whether it's uh, whenever it is or wherever it is. Okay. Then when you come to the book of Hebrews, later on, the writer of Hebrews is informed by Moses and Yeshua. Couldn't do better than that. Right? When you come to chapter 4, he says um, in verse 4, I mean in chapter 4 and verse 1. Now, what's going on here is he's begging these people not to recant their faith. He's begging them, you know, not to walk away from the Lord. Therefore, let us fear while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us. Just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Speaking of in the, in the wilderness. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Quoting Psalm 95. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. This is the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. That God finished his work. He ceased. But, but yet... In Psalm 95, he invites people to enter into that Shabbat with him. For thus he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, a very strange little verse there, right? For he has thus said somewhere, I would say, learn your Bible. No, anyway, he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest, okay? Then he says, um, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter it because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, or like every day, saying through David, after so long a time, after it has said before, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your, your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of yet another day. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from, from his. And his, his point, he's speaking very rhetorically here. He's saying that when we receive Yeshua into our lives, we enter into Shabbat with God. We enter into that relationship with God, we enter into that, that blessed and sanctified time with God, not at a particular location or temple or place, but now we enter into this eternal Shabbat rest. Now, certainly at the, uh, Shabbat has a very end time understanding to it. It's like the world to come will be Shabbat. It's described as it'll be Shabbat. The world to come will be Shabbat. But we get to experience that Shabbat rest now, eternally, every, every uh, day. Yet it is interesting that he uses, he, he talks specifically about the seventh day and relates the seventh day to this issue of Psalm 95, of, of people being invited to enter the rest of God. And so therefore, when we come to Shabbat, when we come to the seventh day, it is everything from a reminder to an experience uh, of our uh, intimacy with God. And God, just as God ceased from his work on that day, so we cease from our work on that day. 
Uh, uh, and in, in a certain respect, when we receive Yeshua, we, like God, we cease from work. And we, and we live and we live in him. And yes, we uh, continue to live and work out our lives and so on and so forth. But uh, Shabbat uh, has this great meaning of it belongs to God, but he allows us to enter into it with him and live in it with him. And that's why Shabbat should be so energizing. Not just so we can go out and make more money or make more things or enjoy more of this or that. or do, But all those days are supposed to lead us to Shabbat. And, and so may it indeed be a day of blessedness uh, uh, for us as, we, as, it, as it symbolizes and demonstrates and, ex- and gives us an experience of uh, relating to God when God delighted in his creation. When we come to Shabbat, may we, may we realize that as new creatures in Messiah, God delights in us. He delights in you and I. Uh, And on Shabbat, we share this delight together by coming together, by worshiping, by sharing a meal together, and whatever it is that we do as as Messiah followers. So certainly there's a lot more to say about Shabbat. But may we uh, rest assured that God delights in his creation. He delights in in what he has made. And he still loves us and, and delights in us, especially when we receive Messiah and we're living in, in him. And he looks forward, indeed, to that day when uh, the whole world will indeed be this great day of delight, this day of Shabbat. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, thank you, God, that uh, you yourself entered Shabbat. You created it. You created it as a day of delight, a day of blessedness, a day of holiness, a day of enjoying your, a day of enjoying and rejoicing in the creation. Lord, may we do so as well. And of Lord, and Lord, of course, we do thank you, God, that not only do we rejoice in our creation, we rejoice in our redemption. Also, we rejoice in our redemption because it brings us back to the intention of Shabbat. Lord, and I do pray, God, that as we uh, understand this and understand it more, we might realize, God, the high calling that you've given us and we might delight in you and that this whole concept of creation and the seventh day, Lord, might evoke worship and praise and thanksgiving, Lord. Lord, the world is in great disarray, in great disorder. Lord, may we realize that when we enter Shabbat, we enter order. We enter your world. We delight in the way you created the world. Not, not what we've done to it, but in the way you have created it. And Lord, as Messiah followers, may we live in such a way to reflect that creation. And may we indeed delight with you on Shabbat. We pray in Yeshua's name.